Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation. I can definitively say the president's not a liar. And I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying Trump is bad for the country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's gone from swamp to sewer, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Have you been watching what's been going on in Poland? The populist Law and Justice Party swept into power in 2015, and the leader, Jarosław Kaczynski, started pushing illiberal reforms. And the most troubling act is his judicial reform bill, which was intended to bring the Polish Supreme Court under political control. Nobody had much confidence in the president, Andrzej Duda, who's a member of that same populist party. He's a hack politician and has gone along with everything else. But Duda surprised everybody this week by vetoing the bills that implemented those changes. Duda hasn't joined the opposition, but he stood up for the independence of the judiciary against a politician who was trying to run roughshod over the separation of powers and the rule of law. Well, we're on the verge of the same situation here. And based on their past record, nobody has much confidence in Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan to stand up to Donald Trump when he threatens political prosecution as a political tool or bullies judges. These guys have been his patsies since he locked up the nomination last spring. But if Trump goes beyond tweeting and takes a genuinely outrageous step like firing Robert Mueller, some sense of public conscience or constitutional responsibility may strike these guys yet. We obviously can't count on Ryan or McConnell. Every indication is they put party loyalty first. But as Trump's challenges to the constitutional order become more and more brazen, don't be surprised if one of our own leading hacks finally has enough and pulls a duda. Coming up on the show, Trump's chief ideologist, Steve Bannon. I'll speak to Joshua Green of Bloomberg Businessweek and the author of the new book, Devil's Bargain, right after this. Joining me in the studio is Joshua Green. He's the author of the new book, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Josh, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So you were on the show uh, once before when you were covering the Trump campaign for Bloomberg Businessweek, but your interest in Bannon started, I mean, you were the the person who I think kind of put him on the map when you did that cover story in business, Bloomberg Businessweek a couple of years ago, 2015, that was sort of the first attention he got around Breitbart and the alt-right and his role in the Trump campaign. And Well, it wasn't his role in the Trump campaign right. at the time. It was his role um, uh, plotting the Clinton cash book that was meant to kind of tear down Clinton, who became Trump's eventual uh, opponent. But he wasn't really tr- – Trump wasn't really on the radar in any serious way back then because he was still you know, a political punchline and was not yet – President of the United States, and but it, but it, the the their hooking up made sense because Bannon was looking for a 
political vehicle, someone mm-hmm. to push these far-right ideas, these alt-right ideas into the mainstream. And Trump was, of course, looking for someone to help him get elected. Yeah, and Trump was like his fourth choice because I met Bannon in 2011. I was working at the Atlantic at the time, and I had just come back from Alaska doing a big piece on Sarah Palin's governorship because a lot of us thought that Palin was going to run for president in 2012. She was certainly hinting that she was going to. And I wrote a big kind of slaty contrarian piece that said, you know, if you look at her record, she actually did some good things as governor. She fixed the state's budget and she raised taxes on oil companies. And I just got a call from a film publicist who said, hey, I represent this filmmaker. He read your article. He loved it. He's doing a film on Palin. Will you come to the sound studio in Arlington, Virginia and meet him and watch his movie? Uh, I said, sure. And the next day I went and it was Steve Bannon. And so at the time, he had the exact same politics that he does now, same affect, same look, you know, the military field jacket, disheveled wild man thing. Worn with cargo shorts and flip flops. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it looks like lo- looks like a bloated alcoholic. And um, and so a couple weeks after that, he and I and Andrew Breitbart and like the entire national press corps traveled out to Pella, Iowa to debut this movie in what everyone thought was a wink, wink announcement that Palin was going to run for president because it was in Iowa. Yeah. So um, Palin didn't end up running. So Bannon next moved on to Michelle Bachman and weirdly uh, even to Jeff Sessions, which is something that Emily Bazelon was talking about, uh, is, is potential presidential vehicles. None of it really worked out. And then lo and behold, you know, Trump decides to run and Bannon had actually been in his orbit for quite a while. And Trump becomes the vessel for his what he calls populist nationalism. So he and and Bannon is for better or for worse. Well, for worse, the, the intellectual core of the Trump presidency. I mean, he is the ideologist. He's the one who is steeped in certain bigger ideas outside of immediate politics and is trying to implement those ideas through politics. So, you know, what I want to ask you about is what those ideas are. People talk about them being connected with fascism, with white supremacy, with anti-Semitism, with, you know, there's a whole history to that. Where do Bannon's ideas come from? What are his ideas? It's a big well, question. So, in, during the campaign, I think his BuzzFeed found video in a transcript of a conference that Bannon had participated in at the Vatican, but it was held by this far-right Catholic outfit. And in his video, Bannon goes on this wild rant about how we're entering a dark age where millions of people are going to be slaughtered. And he name-checked a guy named Julius Evola, who was uh, an Italian intellectual in the interwar period who became Mussolini's um He was Mussolini Steve theorist. Bannon. He was Mussolini Steve Bannon, exactly. And then they had a falling out and he moved on uh, to Nazi Germany. Um, so part of the reporting for the book was I went to Bannon and I said, look, you know, you claim not to be uh, an anti-Semite and a white nationalist, and yet here you are name-checking Evola. If you're not all those things, why is it that you seem so intensely interested in these philosophers from the 30s and 40s who built a lot of the intellectual framework for Mussolini and Hitler and and outfits like that? And he said, kind of matter of factly, well, you know, I'm a nationalist and I believe this stuff. And I went looking for an intellectual underpinning for my beliefs. And if you want to find nationalist philosophers, that's when they were the most prominent. That's when they were the most active. And so, yes, that's why I read 
Evola, you know, he, he wrote a famous book called uh, Revolt Against the Modern World, Evola did, that you know, painted the picture of this world in decline uh, as it moved away from God toward apocalypse. And that jibes very much with Bannon's own grandiose understanding of history and his role in it. But what he told me was, you know, Evola is not really the guy. He said, uh, you know, he had a godfather, this massive intellectual, this is Bannon's term, massive uh-huh. intellectual named Rene Gunion, who I went and read Gunion. Um, he was born in the late 19th century in France, raised as a Roman Catholic, practiced occultism and Freemasonry, and eventually converted to Sufi Islam. And Gunion is the founder of a religious philosophy called traditionalism with a capital T, sometimes known as primordial traditionalism. And this is going to sound like something out of a Dan Brown novel, but <laughs> the idea at the heart of primordial traditionalism is that there is that in the earliest ages of mankind, God revealed certain esoteric truths that lie at the heart of all the ancient religions, the Hindu Vedanta, Sufism, paganism, and that this knowledge was lost to the Western world beginning with the Enlightenment. Uh, So this is essentially an anti-modernist philosophy. Evola, unlike Gunion, believed that finding transcendence was not about spiritual transformation that was about societal transformation. And so Evola made common cause with Mussolini, with Hitler, and tried to enact his ideas that way. Uh, He mostly failed and wound up as uh, an avatar of right-wing Italian terrorists in the 60s and 70s, and now is uh, very popular with Richard Spencer and white supremacists, uh, but Bannon claimed, no, that that was not the part that interested him. It was this idea. <laughs> it was the first chapter. Right? It was the first it was the idea of the client. And Gunion's famous book is called Crisis of the Modern World. Yeah. So you can see the through line in this idea of crisis. But what's so batty about all this, not to cast aspersions on anyone's religious beliefs, is that Bannon and Gunion and Evola are all believers in the Hindu concept of cyclical time. Do you know what that is? Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The idea that the world passes through certain stages. So, uh, you know, Gunion and Evola believe that we are, <laughs> we are right now in the midst of what Hindus call the Kali Yuga, a 6,000-year-long dark age when man's uh, connection to God, to tradition, is wholly lost. And so Bannon's way of fighting against that, as Evola's was in a different context, is to try and set right-wing nationalism against that and sort of destroy these globalist governmental groups like the EU, these secular bureaucrats who are taking us off in this in this ungodly direction and return backwards to an almost medieval time. So, so Josh, my hat is off to you for really reading this stuff and getting into it and trying to figure out what, what Bannon actually thinks and what his intellectual sources are. But isn't the bottom line that he believes in a lot of intellectual BS? I mean, this combination of, you know, uh, this guy's, you know, philosophy is Sufi Islam and, and Vedanta and Freemasonry. I mean, this is intellectual charlatanism. and. Yeah. I don't think it's charlatanism. I think it's intellectual masturbation might be it might be a better word. Um, I, I think that Bannon really does believe a lot of this stuff. You know, one of the things I, I tried to do was, you know, having spent a lot of time with a guy was just understand, like, w- what is firing your pistons here? Like, what is motivating all this? Like, what is your major gripe or complaint? And what makes you so, you know, virulently anti-Islam, anti-immigrant? 
And his explanation is that basically, you know, he thinks that we're headed toward this apocalypse and that, you know, he needs to reassert American identity and cultural norms and this and that. Um, maybe that's a, just a glossed up version of kind of ordinary run of the mill, you know, bigotry, racism, what have you. Um, how but, do you, how does he, how does he square the sort of Catholic traditionalism, like everything went wrong when we stopped saying the mass in Catholic mm-hmm. with um, American nationalism, which is very much populist and Protestant and, you know, not about a group of high priests being the only ones to, to keep with the key to knowledge. So he's a Tridentine Catholic who mm-hmm. says, you know, Latin mass, the whole thing, his parents are, they converted to get, you know, more traditional while the, while the church was, um, you know, modernizing after the Vatican II reform. I think the answer to that would be that Catholic. He would say that Catholicism is, you know, a, a t- our tie back to the tradition, to back back to tradition. That we are moving away from that as people move away from the church, as countries uh, again, Bannon's language, erase their national borders and hand over their sovereignty, the likes of Angela Merkel and uh, the European Union. His one one novel he likes to. Site is the camp of the saints. This, this kind crazy of French novel, crazy yeah. French novel from the 1970s, in which these marauding uh, Muslims kind of invade and take over Europe and the Catholic Church. Uh, and in the novel, there's this kind of liberal pro-immigration globalist pope. Uh, so, so, so to I, th- I think Bannon just gets whipped up on this idea that that this is happening, that this is real, and he fits himself. For for a very big position, kind of fighting on behalf of civilization. I mean, he he he. But what I don't what I don't get, and I guess it's a small point, but it's sort of how that squares with supporting this this exclusivist esoteric brand of Catholicism. I mean, Vatican II was happened in part because they wanted to bring people into the church, well, right? He, and it's like if you're if you're pushing everybody out of the church by making it so difficult mm-hmm. to be a Catholic, you're in a poorer position to compete with Islam. That, if you that's not the it. way he's looking at things yeah. at all. He thinks that the church has been taken over by uh, what he calls a liberal Jesuit globalist Bannon is very much aligned with the, the traditional Catholic factions in the Vatican. He actually started up Breitbart Rome and hired this kind of like dissident fallen ex-priest to run it and has met with Cardinal Burke and a lot of these Catholic traditionalists. That's why he was doing this Vatican conference where he mentioned yeah. Evola to try and prop up that part of the church. I mean, I think he believes the church has been taken over by forces of globalism, yada, yada, yada. But part of his you know, battle is to try and win back the Catholic Church. I mean, this this is all I I realize how ridiculous this sounds, but this is this is what he talks about. This is who he reads. This is what he says he's doing. And let me ask you a series of blunt questions about him. I mean, do you think Bannon is a kind of fascist? I think he is fascist curious. <laughs> um, I think he gets. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a of, that's a relief a, then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, but but a big a big. Um, he he gets excited. I mean, he, he he's a he's a propagandist, and he's obsessed with propaganda films. And he thinks, as I th- I think Trump thinks, that those fascists had real power, and that maybe there's a way to kind of draw from some of what they did and bring it into our own politics. Would Bannon go all the way to fascism? Maybe. Would Trump? Probably. Uh, but I, but I really don't know. You know, it's it's kind of one of those unanswerable questions, or at least. I don't think I could get a satisfying answer out of him. 
Is Bannon a racist? I don't think he is a racist in the sense that he would put on a Klan hood and go around marching. And it's a tough question to answer because, you know, I heard him at various points and I quote him in the book saying things, you know, that, that were anti-Muslim, that were anti-immigrant, that were sexist. I never heard him say anything that was racist or anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, there are black employees who work for Breitbart. And yet, if you look at the kind of headlines they run, you know, black on black crime, marauding Black Panthers, so on and so forth, they certainly... And this French novel, he, he's always he's yeah. talking about, it's a racist book. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if your favorite novel is a racist book, you you know, you, it's not case closed, but it's certainly case open. Yeah, and this is, this is I add, you know... I, I asked him about this. In fact, somebody at the Vatican conference asked him about this, too. It's in the videotape. He said, well, how come that, you know, the hard right is so infected with anti-Semites and white supremacists and racists? I asked Ben on the same thing and got the same kind of answer. He kind of shrugs and waves it off and says, well, you know, we're all outsiders. You can't really you can't really uh, pick and choose who your allies are. You know, we're going to kind of take over and then all that stuff will just wash out. So he is at the very least, not bothered by any of this. I think you could you could go further and say that he's abetted this stuff, not only in the kind of articles that Breitbart ran and the headlines that were given in the explicit emphasis on on race and on uh, black people and immigrants as these kind of menacing figures, but also in how he gave rise to the likes of Milo Yiannopoulos and helped channel in a lot of this ugly alt-right sentiment in political actors from kind of the gamer underworld into uh, Breitbart and Trump and, and, and our modern political process. Um, Vladimir Putin has a sort of Steve Bannon who's called Alexander Dugin. Yes. Um, what's the connection there? And are they, do they play the same role for their uh, respective authoritarian inclined leaders? They do. And what's so bizarre and interesting about that is Dugin is also a capital T traditionalist. Like ben, before Bannon came along, Dugin was sort of the most prominent traditionalist. He translated the works of uh, Julius Evola into Russian in the early 1980s, and he helped give Putin a kind of Russia-first nationalism that is based on the tenets of traditionalism. Dugan gave it a, 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 a Russia-centric spin. His He calls it Eurasianism, and it's the, the idea that there are these traditional Russian values and that uh, the rise of secular modernity and the acceptance of homosexuality and all the stuff that Putin rails against is, is kind of part of the same thing that Bannon is objecting to in a U.S. political context. Um, so, Josh, you, you uh, explained in the book how, how Bannon made a lot of money himself, but he has very important financial patrons, the Mercers. Yes. Can you talk about them and what they, how they see Bannon and what they want out of this? Um, so the Mercers are um, Robert Mercer, who uh, is the co-CEO of Renaissance Technologies, a very secretive hedge fund out on Long Island that um, I believe Bloomberg, my employer, said is like the most profitable hedge fund of all time. And his daughter, Rebecca Mercer, who is very politically active in uh, Republican circles, but especially in kind of hard right fringy stuff. And uh, they met, I think, in 2010, 2011. It was while Andrew Breitbart was still alive. But the Mercers got interested in Republican political giving in much the same way that other 
rich, politically motivated conservatives do. I think they gave to Carl Rose Network. They gave to the Koch Brothers Network. And then after all of that flopped in 2012, the Mercers became angry and they broke off. So I describe them as the alt Cokes in the book. Yeah. Uh, instead of instead of funding uh, traditional outlets, they backed Bannon and a number of ventures. Breitbart News, I think they put in $10 million and helped him to expand. Cambridge Analytica, they bought a piece of the data science firm, the U.S. Uh, outlet. But the one that interested me, and this was the basis of the 2015 Business Week profile, which is the first time I really wrote about Bannon, was they funded a, a nonprofit uh, research institute called the Government Accountability Institute, which was devoted to uh, researching cronyism and politics. And the president of GI, a guy named Peter Schweitzer, had done a lot of investigative work on, on, on Congress, on Republicans and Democrats, teamed up with major ma uh, mainstream media outlets. Bannon and Mercer, I think, encouraged him to really focus on Hillary and Bill Clinton and their financial ties through the Clinton Foundation to shady foreign characters. And they spent millions of dollars in a couple of years and had teams of lawyers and forensic accountants and kind of deep web specialists gathering all this information, putting it into a book. And Bannon's idea was... If we can just get facts on Clinton and hand it to the mainstream media, then we can seed the mainstream media with our anti-Clinton narrative in a way that conservatives were not able to do in the 1990s when they just had all these batty theories and rumors that had to be uh, cycled through British tabloids and Dredge Report. And sure enough, it, it basically worked. The book came out on the eve of Clinton's announcement, but the reporting from it first appeared on the front page of the New York Times, where there was a big above-the-fold article by Joe Becker and some other people about the money Clinton had taken from, I'm going to mess this up, it was a uranium magnate who I think was doing deals in Kazakhstan, Yeah, Frank Juster, but it gives Juster, millions yeah. and millions, like $30 million or something to the Clinton right. Foundation. And, you know, it caused an uproar and it also led to a Margaret Sullivan column. She was the ombudsman at the yeah. time because a lot of people complained and said, wait a minute, where you're, you're bringing this from this book, Clinton Cash by these partisans. Why is this in the New York Times? And, but what, it, what do you think the Mercers want? I mean, you've explained really well what Bannon wants. He wants to re reverse 6,000 years of cultural decline. Yeah. Uh, what are the Mercers? Is this about the self-interest, their self-interest in the in the taxation of hedge fund gains or is this about ideology it's, it's, in some deeper way? You know, I've, I've never interviewed Bob Mercer. He doesn't talk. Neither does Rebecca Mercer. I have a hard time believing it's only about the facts that the hedge funds are taxed too much. I mean, they've got a billion dollars. That's I'm sure that's one component of it, but they seem to want, they just seem to want to kind of blow up the system. And they're particularly infatuated with some very strange ideas. My colleague at Business Week, uh, Zachary Mider, wrote kind of the original profile of Bob Mercer. And Zach went out to Oregon and found the first candidate that Mercer ever backed, who is this weird research chemist who lived alone in the woods and collected thousands and thousands of samples of human urine because he thought it was the key to extending life. And he was running in a, in a congressional campaign against the incumbent Democrat, just to give you a flavor of, of what it is. It's the flavor of urine and a lot of oh, urine. Oh, God. Thanks. Thanks, for that. <laughs> Thanks for that thought. But it's, so, so it's hard to know exactly, like, what does someone like that really want out of the political process? I honestly don't have any idea. <laughs> you actually can't make any sense out of it. How them. could you make sense out of that? Yeah. You know? And, mm -hmm. and, and I just got to get this in because we're talking about urine. And, and Rebecca Mercer, apparently during the Trump transition, tried to get this guy, urine man, appointed to the National Science Council. So uh, 
hasn't happened yet. You yeah. ask what she wants out of politics. There you go. Yes, exactly. Well, he will be uh, ambassador in charge of yellow snow for to oh, the uh, Northern Territories. Last thing I want to ask you about, Jeff Sessions. So if you s- said, how is Steve Bannon going to start to get the policies that he wants inside the Trump administration? You'd say, well, he got this guy, Jeff Sessions, appointed exactly. to attorney general. It's his ally and he's implementing all this stuff. Trump is doesn't seem to want to fire Sessions, at least so far, but he's trying to get him to quit. He's trying to push him out. Is he? Certainly seems like it. But give me your take on it. And where is Bannon in all this? I mean, is Bannon <clears throat> just kind of cringing on the sidelines, glad that it's not Bannon? Or is Bannon just unable to influence Trump in any way? What's what's going on with the I, three of them? I think it's a lot. I mean, Bannon has, has worked so hard to kind of crawl his way back from nearly getting – pushed out of the White House after his Time Magazine, great manipulator, cover, kind of enraged Trump, and Kushner was trying to stab him in the back and get him out of there. And Bannon hung on, and he kind of crawled his way back to a position of influence. Not and quite just to be before. clear, he just got in trouble because he got attention, and Trump's like, all attention belongs to me. And yes, you, and as a White House some, advisor yeah. put it for you, Trump doesn't want any co-stars, and yeah. I think that's exactly right. So, you know, Bannon had just gotten back and all this stuff happens with Trump. I'm sure that Bannon is anguished because Bannon thought that getting Trump or sorry, getting Sessions installed as AG was the whole key to imposing his idea of nationalism, A, because Sessions believes in it, which Trump obviously does not. But Sessions and Bannon both do. And B, because he's the highest law enforcement official in the land and has broad purview over immigration laws, criminal justice reform and kind of push back against everything that Obama has done. And we've seen that. Arrests are up. Uh, Sessions has sent administrative judges down to the border, extra ones to help process these deportations. Just yesterday, I didn't get attention for obvious reasons, but Sessions put out a statement kind of threatening sanctuary cities to have their federal funds withdrawn if they didn't start turning these people over to the cops. So Sessions is like the only guy in the Trump administration who's actually carrying out the things Trump ran on. And here he is just getting creamed by his own president, publicly humiliated. I mean, because of the case in which he tried to follow the law, right? He followed the guidelines on recusal. Well, well, but it but it wasn't even that honorable, right? I mean, Sessions originally didn't recuse himself. And it was only after he'd been caught essentially perjuring himself, hadn't revealed these meetings with Russia, that he was all but forced to recuse himself. So this wasn't an issue of like, you know, Southern honor and doing the right thing. He didn't have any choice. The fascinating dynamic to me is that anyone with an iota of, of, of honor and integrity would resign the first time a president publicly humiliated them like that. And yet Sessions really believes this stuff. He cares about it more than Trump does. And he realizes this is the only position of influence he'll ever be in his life. He's a gadfly senator before this. He'll be gave up his job. They can't get back. Yeah. But 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 even if he were to go back to his job, he wouldn't have any real influence. I mean, he he's in a position now where he does and he can't bear to give it up. So he's as as is true with so many people in Trump's orbit, he is willing to suffer seemingly any humiliation and indignity and to see his reputation ruined and destroyed by virtue of his association with Donald Trump. What um, I, there was a report I think yesterday that um, Steve Bannon brought Ann Coulter into the White House 
and the she reamed Trump out about immigration or not being tough enough on all the things the the Breitbartians care care about. What's going on there? Is this is Steve Bannon trying to use a proxy to get through to get through to his, his president? Yeah, and it's not just Steve Bannon. I mean, a lot of people in the White House that are 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 very and outside the White House and Republican Party, they're very upset by what Trump is doing to Sessions because they understand that Sessions is a true believer and is carrying out the policies they support. Uh, but Coulter, who is you know virulently pro-Trump, anti-immigration legal and Ill- illegal like Bannon, and actually ghost wrote parts of Trump's immigration, his policy white paper, a story I tell in the book, uh, during the campaign when there was no policy infrastructure, went in and I think read Trump the Riot Act and said, you know, you promised to do all these things, your base believed it, and now you're turning around and assassinating the one guy we want in there who's really carrying it out. Stop it. And you heard the same thing from Breitbart News yesterday and Rush Limbaugh and, you know, Charles Krauthammer and Tucker Carlson. I mean, the th- this is the first time that I have seen where Republicans have been willing to criticize Trump in anything more than the most kind of timid and, 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 and frightened way. There really have been some people who've kind of come out and said, Trump is wrong to do this and stop it. Of course, Trump isn't listening. You think the dam's finally breaking with the Republicans? No. 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 So just a few outliers are being a little braver. braver but well, he, well, here's, I mean, this is the classic, um, you know, kind of performative nonsense that you get from a lot of people. They come out and say, you know, I'm very disappointed in the president. I wish he'd stop tweeting. And then they don't do anything to back up that quote unquote disappointment. Look at Paul Ryan. I mean, we've been through the cycle a hundred times with Ryan until somebody is willing to say, I'm not voting to for any of your bills or to confirm any of your judges, you know, because I'm angry about this. Until there's uh, something to back up the supposed disappointment, I don't think it's make any difference at all. I've been speaking to Joshua Green of Bloomberg Business Week. His new book is Devil's Bargain. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Hey, are you following us on Twitter? We're at Real Trumpcast. You can find the whole gang there, including Jason DeLeon, who produced today's show. Thank you, Jason. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.